Welcome back to Midwretched Friends. Welcome back to Midwretched Friends. We are so glad to be here, and we're glad that you're here too. We missed a week. Our listeners don't know that we missed a week. That's true. We know that we missed a week. Yeah. We know. And so we know that we're off our game, but they don't need to know that. Right. Right. So pretend we said nothing. <laughs> I, I just said that because we've missed each other and we've been kind of out of our habit. Mm-hmm. And everything has just been very wonky and yes. yeah, but we hope that you're enjoying life and springtime and mm-hmm. warmth and barbecuing and yes. all of that good stuff and gardens and playgrounds and lounging naked in your hammock like whatever your thing is we hope that you're doing it and enjoying it yes yeah exciting i am coming to us coming to you from my new pod <gasps> that's den right. Yeah. that's right you are in your whole new pod den yes yes it's uh empty other than this desk <laughs> but we'll get there <laughs> um we have only been moved for a week as of this recording so um yeah like this is our one week anniversary in our house tonight so wow yeah yeah it's been a whirlwind that's for sure so yeah yeah you had a very harrowing move um yeah it was terrible we had a really awful experience a really awful experience um but we did end up getting a 50 percent refund for our troubles which is nice because it was like legitimately like really bad like the movers were really awful so but they gave us a refund and that is helpful because we are definitely spending a lot of money (laughs) girl i'm still spending a lot of money from the move yeah it's crazy it's just like every time you turn around it's like oh we could use this we could use that we need this tool we need you know this or that or whatever so you know, like another $300 target run later. Like, here we go. Oh, my God. Yeah. So. And, like, once you think you have everything, like, all the big stuff covered, then mm-hmm. you're like, oh, but we also need this little thing and this little thing. Yep. And it never stops. Yeah. I mean, we have so much more house now. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, we have, like, more rooms than we used to have to, you know, figure out what to do with. But it is so nice being in such a larger house that is just, like – a godsend so like i can't hear i know that murder husband is downstairs watching tv because i saw him connect the roku on my phone but i can't hear it (gasps) isn't it lovely yeah it's beautiful and also now i'm in a very small town so there's like no noise that is what's freaking me out more than anything i told you about my weird experience with the mailboxes and like Mm -hmm. why are all these people here (laughs) it's just just mailboxes (laughs) This town is so small that we don't even have mailboxes. I know, because I tried to send you some. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we have P.O. boxes, because it's so small that, like, why bother delivering mail to three blocks when you can just deliver it to a P.O. box? Because I was trying to send you very pretty flowers. I know. <laughs> and I'm very excited that we found a workaround. Yes. I just, like, I do feel a little bit, though, like, like, will this slow me down on my online shopping? Because when boxes are delivered to my house, I can intercept them first, and nobody really knows, you know? I but, mean, you can do the same with a P.O. box. You just got to really be on point. Yeah, and then, like, the postmaster's going to know, though, because there's, like, one person that works at the post office, you know? And you don't no, want them judging you. she's really, you. really nice, so... Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, that's my updates. Um, do you have any like 
case updates or life updates that need to be discussed? For all of those who are concerned, Murder Beagle is doing amazing on his Prozac. Aw, that's good. We have had no crying spells, no accidents. Mm -hmm. He can be in a room alone, which is fantastic. Wow, that's great. But other than that, yeah, no. I'm growing a lot of tomatoes. That's that. That's about the biggest life event that I've. That's a beautiful thing. I I wish that was me. (laughs) So jealous. I'm very excited because some of the ones I grew from seed and now they're like two feet tall and Aww, I'm so happy for them. You did such a good them. job, Mother Earth. Yeah. Other than that, no, I'm just, That's I'm great. straight vibing. And then, so you have like a really intense story for us today. That's what you've been able to kind of dig your time into lately. I have been. So I have dropped nuggets to you yes. along the way. So we're going to get into nice. some stuff. I am super excited to share this one with y'all because I realized I'd been doing like a lot of mysteries and unsolved cases and uh, I think that annoys people because they don't like unsolved things. <laughs> it definitely, um, it gets to murder husband. He really just does not care for a mystery. But I think some people do. I think it's just a personality thing. I hmm. love a mystery and to be fair, Hang Lee, to me, is not a mystery. No, it's not. It's just a complete, like, injustice, basically. Yeah, exactly. But all of that said, I also, because I was like, ah, oh, straight vibing this week, also work was super chill. I haven't been nice. bitten in two weeks. I'm so happy. That's great. <laughs> so I got to dig my teeth into a good old-fashioned serial killer profile. Yes. And you know how much I love these. I'm so excited. Give it to me. This is a serial killer. There are not many good, like, documentaries or podcasts on him. There's a couple, like, little legit 20, 30-minute podcasts about him. Hmm. And I have no idea why. Mm -hmm. Um, So today we're going to be covering the case of John Joseph Jubert. Uh, Have you ever heard of him? I know the name, but I don't know the story. Okay. So anyone who's going to see the title of this episode is going to be like, Mick, that's not how you pronounce that. That is how he pronounced it. Yeah. It looks like it should be like Joubert. Joubert. Yeah. Joubert. But we're in Nebraska. Mm. So Joubert. It's Joubert. Yeah. Actually, we're going to start off in Maine, but. Okay. All right. So there's no mystery. I'm not going to start off and give you any like, ooh, mystery. We are straight diving into the case of John Joseph Joubert. Fantastic. And along the way, we are going to maybe connect to a couple of other things. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So introducing one of the most terrible serial child killers and youngest serial child killers in Nebraska history. Mm. So we're going to talk about the life and crimes of John Joseph Jubert. Mm. Um, I feel awkward now transitioning into it because I jumped around my intro, but (laughs) (laughs) awkward. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, Anyway, (laughs) so. John Jubert IV was born July 2nd, 1963 in Lawrence, mm. Massachusetts. A cancer. Do you know all of these off the top of your head? Mm-hmm. Hmm. One time somebody asked me what my sign was and I legitimately had no idea. Aquarius, as if it's not obvious. Is it? Very. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I'm going to take it as a compliment. 
It is. It is. I love Aquarians. Okay. The Aquarians are a cult. That's true. I'm not in that cult. I should be. You should be. Anyway. 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 So John was born to John III and Beverly Jubert. His father was a cook and a waiter at a local diner. His mother was a bookkeeper. He had one younger sister named Jane. So Jane and John. Mm -hmm. Jane was about two years younger. And there are some sources, it's a little unclear, he might have had like half-siblings or step-siblings in some Mm -hmm. situations. Okay. Because, spoilers, he did not grow up in a happy home. Oh, okay. I was just thinking, like, those occupations are, like, very normal. Are we going to be talking about, like, oh, this was such an average normal upbringing. How could it have gone so wrong? No, we're not going to know. Sorry. Spoilers. That's okay. Eh. It's not okay. It's terrible, but you know what I mean. But yeah, no, cook, waiter, bookkeeper, you know, seems like pretty normal on the surface. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, John seemed super hyper normal on the surface. Mm -hmm. He was reportedly a super bright kid from a very young age. He started reading at age three. And a lot of people are super impressed. They're like, oh, he was checking out books from the library by age five. But I read that and I was like, don't most children do that? Was that just, like, a my family thing? I mean, it was my family, too, but I think it's a... I thought, I heard people say that, and I was like, that's not special. Like, I don't know. I think it, it, uh, for it to not be special, I think, involves a lot of privilege. I guess. Like, to to think that that's not special. It says more about either of us than it says about, you know. You're right. He also was... Apparently, as a child, given an IQ test, and he had an IQ of 123. Mm-hmm. It's unclear if he was tested when he was, like, really young or if it was when he was older. Um, 123, again, a lot of people are really hyper-impressed by, but especially if he was tested when he was young. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of digging at all of this because everybody thinks, like, oh, he was so hyper-intelligent and this, that, and the other. I think it's, again, us putting serial killers on a pedestal. Mm. Oh, they're so hyper-intelligent, and that's why they got away with everything. Yeah. Um, 123, especially if you're tested as a child, it's... I'm going to bust a lot of parental bubbles here. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to regress toward the mean by the time they're, like, eight or nine, and it's going to be less impressive. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Oh, yeah. I see it constantly that the younger you test a kid, the more likely they have, like, a hyperinflated IQ score. Hmm. People have really poor understanding of what IQ is. And they're like, oh, they had a 123 IQ at age three. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I know what mine is approximately. And I was like, I mean, that's quite good. But, yeah, I don't know how to put it into context necessarily, you know. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know, I get bugged by when I see IQ scores because Mm -hmm. it's literally the biggest part of my job. Yeah. Um, And I have to spend so much time debunking IQ score myths. Mm. So every time I see IQ scores, I just get irritated reading them. Yeah, there's like an instant skepticism to it for you. Oh, constantly. Yeah. Anyway, he was tested to have a high, high average IQ when he was a kid. So people say, oh, he was a very, very smart child. John's parents would divorce when he was about six years old. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, reading about his life, this seems like one of those marriages where divorce was the better option. 
Yeah. It was very clear that there was some domestic violence in the home. Mm. John reported not remembering this specific incident I'm going to talk about, but his mother would tell it to him, Hmm. actually, while he was in prison. John saw his father choke her and hold her against the wall until she passed out. Good gracious. And this was just a common occurrence when he was a child. Wow. And apparently when Beverly told him that, he didn't remember any of it. Hmm. And she was like, no, that was, that was your childhood. Jeez. So when his parents divorced when he was at six years old, his mother completely disallowed him from seeing his father. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's all that John ever wanted to do. Yeah. And uh, and again, this is one of those things. In those like short little snippets that we see, and those short little like kind of podcast people would be like, oh, well, his mother was so strict and so stern with her. And she was. She believed in corporal punishment. She believed in very harsh punishments. She physically abused him. Mm-hmm. But I also don't, I think his father probably was doing the same thing. Yeah. John, as he would get older, would ask his mother for money to go see his dad to take the bus or whatever, and she would always refuse. Mm -hmm. So he would just jump on his bike and ride his bike over to his dad's house. And it's unclear what would ever happen then. Would his dad let him in? Would his dad let him stay with him? Would his dad just send him back? Mm -hmm. There's no information about how his dad treated him. Mm, That's interesting. There never is. Nobody cares about the dad. Yeah. Because everybody just thinks moms are to blame for serial killers. But That's true. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when you give me too much time on my hands. I just get irritated. No, I gave you a week off and you've just been like stewing. <laughs> and I'm just like stewing on stereotypes yeah, and all so. of this stuff. <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Because we always blame moms and nobody even cares to look into the relationship with dad. But like I said, Beverly was definitely reported to be very controlling, incredibly strict. She spanked him until Mm -hmm. he was like 12, which is definitely weird. Wow. But then kind of what emerges from this incredibly toxic household. So as young as age six, John reported that he began to have violent fantasies. Oh, great. Aside from everything, as young as age six, that's a crazy time to start having the things that he would admit to as Mm -hmm. in fantasies about murdering his babysitter about strangling yikes and a drive to kill people jesus now initially these were all focused on his babysitter and he would go on to say i didn't have anything against her like i didn't dislike her she was just a really convenient target for the fantasies hmm that's interesting. It's interesting mm-hmm. that his mom wasn't. Yes. His mom would eventually become like a target for some of the violence in his mind, but mm-hmm. it was really targeted at his babysitter. Interesting. But he masked this quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Like he really, really worked to make himself seem normal, unassuming, and it happened pretty easily for him because he was a small kid like a thin kid a short kid Mm -hmm. if you just look at a picture of him he's incredibly unassuming yeah he joined the boy scouts at at a young age 
And he would eventually rise to the rank of Eagle Scout, which is mm, a pretty rare thing. Yeah, like kind yeah. of a good job thing. Mm-hmm. And you tend to associate Boy Scouts and Eagle Scouts with responsibility and community service and yeah. all of that good stuff, right? Yeah, for sure. So to the outside world, he was just kind of a shy, bookish, awkward, harmless kid. Mm-hmm. But over the next few years, some more things would happen. So his mom was working to raise John and his younger sister, Jane, as kind of a single mom, which is Mm -hmm. difficult. They moved around a lot to kind of increasingly run down neighborhoods Mm -hmm. until they finally settled in Portland, Maine, when he was about 11. Okay. And apparently once they finally did settle down in school, he was just like mercilessly bullied all Mm -hmm. throughout middle school and high school. What for? He's just awkward and small. He just never quite fit in. Again, there was Mm -hmm. nothing necessarily outstanding about him, but he was bullied. He was called gay. He just never was able to kind of find people that would accept him. Mm. And even other people that went to school with him would really say, like, we have no idea how he he went to school every day. Like, it was that bad. Dang. But he just internalized all of it. Like, he didn't necessarily let it show. Mm. He just kept building more and more and more resentment as time went on. Well, that's healthy. Yeah, just internalize that, kiddo. Mm. And just kind of, you know, use it to channel all of those dark fantasies, right? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. It would not take long for those fantasies to move into reality. Oh, yikes. By age 11 or 12, those fantasies about strangling and killing his babysitter would move on to fantasies about strangling and stabbing the young boys and girls in his class. Oh. And these fantasies always had a theme of domination. Mm. So we're talking like legit fifth, sixth grade age here. Wow. And so he claims to not remember watching his dad choke out his mom, but he has a particular fixation on strangulation. Correct. Okay. That's interesting. I know. This is why I love doing profiles. Yeah. So strangulation and stabbing Mm -hmm. were always his fixations. So intimate. So intimate. So close contact. Yeah. So he commits his first stabbing at the young age of 13. Good night. At 13, he stabs a young girl from his, we believe it was a girl from his school, she's remained anonymous, Mm. with a pencil. Only weeks later, he moves on and he slashes another girl's bike tires with a razor blade. Oh, jeez. In later interviews, he would say that these first two attacks were his first experiences feeling sexually stimulated. Again, 13. Yeah. There was one report that, so he was with his classmates. He had a teacher. They were doing a science experiment together in middle school. And the teacher wanted to give a demonstration about how electrical currents worked and how electrical currents traveled. Mm. He had, you know, his electrical wires and all of that. And he gave the kids very specific instructions. Be careful while we're doing this and don't touch each other because they were like holding the wires and whatever. Sure. Do not touch each other during the demonstration because you could hurt each other. Mm. John hears this (laughs) 
and immediately is like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. Yeah. And as he, he's doing this demonstration, he grabs specifically one of his bullies and mm. electrocutes him to the point that this boy is sent to the hospital. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. And okay. he plays this off as, oh, this was an accident and blah, blah, blah. And the teacher is like, I understand you broke a rule, but, you know, you probably didn't mean to. Mm. Again, it's, it's just a boyish prank or whatever. And he hasn't been connected to the stabbing or the bike tire slashing yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. So all of this stuff he's getting away with and nobody's connecting him to it. Mm. So he's just maintaining this persona of this awkward Boy Scout, you know, band geek, playing with model planes and all of that. Gotcha. He graduated high school with a 2.75 GPA, which mm -hmm. is, eh, yeah. There was a four-month period during his junior year that we're going to kind of talk a little bit about. Okay. So he's 16 years old. December 1979 is when he commits his first kind of escalation period. Okay. John is riding his bike through a local neighborhood. And he rides past a six-year-old girl named Sarah Canty, who is playing out in her front yard. Mm. As he rides by, he pulls out a sharpened pencil, stabs her in the abdomen, and runs away. Yikes. So another girl that he stabbed. Yeah. Are we still in Maine at this point? We're still in Portland, Maine. Yeah. Okay. The girl runs, screams out in pain. Her parents rush off. But by the time her parents even get out, like just to her front yard john's already biked off into the distance Jeez, to be able to inflict an injury like that with a pencil with a you pencil. have to put so much force behind mm -hmm. that motion good mm -hmm. god yeah when i think about stabbing with a pencil i think like it's more of a poke mm -hmm. than a stab but this girl had to go to the hospital and get stitches wow And it wasn't long after that, January 1980, so just a couple of weeks later, mm -hmm. John follows 27-year-old Vicki Goff down along a street in Portland called Deering Avenue. This is literally just probably three, four blocks away from where he stabbed Sarah. Okay. So Vicki was a local student at the local university. She was on her way to a creative writing class. She walked by a young teenage boy that she didn't kind of think anything to. The boy kind of looks up, casually says hi to her, and she nods, keeps on walking. Without warning, that boy flips around, grabs her around the back to the front of the mouth. Ugh. She says she felt herself hit the ground, and just as suddenly as she was grabbed, the boy runs up and runs away. Jeez. She attempts to get up, just still just disoriented mm -hmm. in a daze from what happened. It wasn't until she tried to stand up that she started to feel blood on her side. Aww. And realized that as she had been pulled to the ground, she had also been stabbed with a knife. Ugh. She was rushed to Maine Medical Center where she would spend another week recovering from that attack. Wow. So we're at the point he has four victims already, and he's 16 years old. Yeah, and that's really random. Like, I was not expecting you to say somebody in their 20s. Yep. 
these early attacks are all it's a six-year-old girl it's a classmate that's about 13 the same age as him another Mm -hmm. young child and then an adult he's experimenting he's experimenting one of the things to keep in mind about him like he's not a big person either right right at his adult height he was five foot six Okay. So he's also seeing what he can do physically, probably. Like, mm-hmm. he's not just experimenting with the stimulation of it or whatever. He's he's testing his own physical limits, too. Because one of the things that he was always bullied for was his size and his, you know, kind of smallness. Yeah. He was short. He was pretty thin. I think at the time he was about 130, 140 pounds. Yeah. So for him to be able to just grab a full-grown adult, like, around the neck like that is... Mm-hmm. So fast forward, we're only going another two months to March 24th, 1980. Okay. A third grader is walking down Deering Avenue. So the same street that Vicky was attacked on. Mm-hmm. Now this third grader was nine-year-old Michael Whitham. He was just a few houses from his home. John rides his bike up to Michael, just, you know, up the sidewalk casually, mm-hmm. as though nothing's happening. He stops and asks Michael where he's going, what he's doing. And Michael understandably starts kind of feeling awkward and a little uncomfortable about why a teenager is asking him all of these questions. Yeah. So Michael kind of turns his head to look back toward his house, kind of that just that desperate like I'm looking for my mom now. Yeah. The moment he turns his head, John slashes his throat with an exacto knife. <gasps> oh my god. Michael runs home holding his neck and bleeding out. And luckily, I will say, he did survive. Oh, wow. Okay, thank goodness. Yeah. Michael survived. He received 12 stitches at a local hospital. Wow. But again, John runs off into the distance and is never connected to these attacks. Good gracious. All of these attacks were within half a mile of each other. Yeah, and probably pretty close to his house, right? Mm-hmm. Very close to his house. Okay. So I have to think that the parents of these kids are reporting these incidents. Oh, yeah, because they're all at the hospital. They're all going to the police. Vicki mm-hmm. Goff, like, really pushed to, like, find evidence of the crime. Yeah. But remember, we're in 1979, 1980. Yeah. We're not exactly in, like, forensics heaven at this point, yeah. There's no CCTV. There's no security cameras. Yeah. Especially in public parks. Right. And speaking of Vicky, shortly after she got released from the hospital, her and her husband moved out of the area and just fearing future attacks. Like, this is three attacks in three months. Yeah, understandably. I probably would try to leave, too. Yeah. But oddly enough, as soon as that series of attacks began, they stopped. Mm. And there's no clear reason why they stopped. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And John remained in the area until he graduated from high school. Mm. It was almost as though he had this episode of attacks. Yeah. And got it out of his system and then went back to trying to be normal. Mm-hmm. So a cooling off period. I mean, we mm-hmm. see that, you know. Yeah. Exactly. So he would remain in the area and have that cooling off period until he graduated from high school in 1981. Okay. In 1981, he would move to Northfield, Vermont to attend Norwich University. At Norwich, he majored in engineering. He didn't make it very far. 
he only attended about one semester of academics, mm. picked up a couple 10 credits, but he did manage to find himself a social life for the first time. Yeah. He made a few friends. He began experimenting with drugs and alcohol. And he kind of stayed there for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Now, he would later tell psychiatrists, like, I enjoyed having friends and I enjoyed having a social life, but I really didn't enjoy the drugs or alcohol because I didn't like that lack of control that I felt when I was using them. Gosh. I didn't like losing my sense of control. That's exactly how I feel about drinking, too. <laughs> like, I, I, I have said that exact thing before, like... Obviously, I'm not a serial killer, but... I was going to ask you, are you a serial killer? No, but the loss of control is really scary when you're a control-oriented person. And, like, yeah. that's something I know about myself, like, pathologically. You know? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I'm a Virgo. Can you tell, audience? <laughs> yes, I can yeah, you completely can. tell that you're a Virgo. You know, what's interesting, though, too, is I was just looking at him... Um, like googling him he's a good looking kid he's a cute like, kid yeah so i kind but, of but, wonder, but that's what like, i'm saying he's a cute kid yeah yeah i mean he looks he looks like a baby i mean like even in this like booking photo i'm looking at he looks like a baby do you know how old he was in that booking photo i do not he was 21 wow no i would have if you'd shown me that i would say he looked like one of my own students like 16 or 17. I That's what I was thinking. Like, on the lower end, he looks about 14. Mm-hmm. I would never think that he is more than 18. No, on the average end, I'd say he looks like a high school junior or a senior. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. It's interesting that you say that because, so, that kind of age group is where he gets a little stunted. Mm. He gets kind of stunted right around those middle school, early high school years. Yeah. So he tried college. He only made it through about three, four classes Mm -hmm. before dropping out. He would then eventually, he found some odd jobs kind of in the area, but none of them tended to work out. Mm -hmm. So in the summer of 1982, he enlisted in the Air Force. Okay. So he enlisted in the Air Force and he would leave Maine in August of 1982. Okay. But before he leaves, we have one more incident to cover. Really? August 23rd, 1982, around 7.45 p.m., 11-year-old Ricky Stetson tells his parents that he's going out for a jog around Back Cove, which is this kind of like cute little, I looked up pictures of it and kind of Google Maps it and dropped my little guy on it. Mm Mm-hmm. It's this very cute little promenade park kind of community walk running track. Oh, lovely. Around like a little kind of like a water, like a pond or something like that. It's very, very cute. Cute. A very kind of social area. The sun was still up. Mm. So it was like kind of August, those beautiful August evenings. So his parents tell him, okay, that's great. Just don't go too far and be home before dark. Mm Mm-hmm. Ricky leaves. He goes for his jog around this promenade. Several people in the park would say that they saw Ricky jogging around the path, followed by a man riding his bike closely behind him. Mm -hmm. Obviously, again, no surprises. It's John Jubert on this bike Mm -hmm. behind him. 
people would kind of say like, oh, yeah, it was kind of weird, but I don't know. Maybe it was his big brother. You know, you're not mm. going to question something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there were definitely witnesses. Once John kind of follows him to a point that they're out of the sight of most observers, John grabs Ricky off his bike. Ugh. He grabs Ricky, who is very, very small. He's 11 years old, but if you look up a picture of him, he is also very, very tiny. Mm-hmm. John grabs Ricky off his bike, drags him into a wooded area where he strangles him both manually and with a ligature. Jeez. He stabs him repeatedly. Forensics would immediately say this is a clear lack of control. This is overkill violence. Yeah. Most importantly, what they would find is a bite on his right calf. A bite? A human bite mark on his right calf. God, that poor baby. So the body eventually was found in a nearby highway. Um, Again, with pretty limited effort to conceal it. Mm -hmm. He was found the next day by a passing motorist. Now, at the time, a suspect was arrested pretty quickly for the crime. That was not John. Hmm. But what was interesting, and this is kind of an accidental signature of John Jubers. Mm. That bite mark on Ricky's calf. John tried to cut it out. Interesting. He tried to slash at it so that the bite mark would not be recognizable. Hmm. But he didn't cut far enough down so that the dental impressions were still very, very clear. Mm. And it was the dental impressions that got this other guy off that his dental impressions did not match. Yeah, that's interesting. Interesting that he knew to try to do that. So one thing that we'll learn about John is he loved true detective stories. Ah. He read true crime religiously. Okay. And who do we know got put away for bite mark evidence? In 1979. Who? Ted Bundy. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> and it I was just, the bite. I try not to think about Ted Bundy, but okay, yeah, you're right. And that, that, that's fair, but yeah. I think it's relevant in this case that 1979, mm-hmm. what puts Bundy away is bite mark evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John Jubert admitted he followed true crime mm-hmm. very closely. So he knew that case. So he knew that case. So what he thought he was doing to hide himself ended up being his signature. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. I think that those accidental signatures are what I think are really interesting, and I can't stop thinking about Delphi lately. Oh my gosh, me too. I just have nonstop thought about Delphi. But okay, so when it comes to this, though, it's interesting to me that the crime itself was so out of control Mm -hmm. but that then there was that control afterward to try to eliminate evidence so there wasn't Mm -hmm. the there was like a fury to get the crime done but Mm -hmm. not necessarily a fury to leave i think that there was a bit of a fury to leave because Mm. the attempt to conceal the body was so poor Mm. yeah that's fair So, so like i think he thought about it he just did it so poorly yeah, yeah, that's fair. 
he didn't know how to actually conceal himself. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But I think the lack of control at the time of these attacks is a big thing. Yeah. I also just think that the the location of that bite mark uh, feels mm-hmm. sexual for sure. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So this is John's first murder. Mm. Now, here's the thing. So I said that they had arrested that first guy. They had him arrested pretty quickly after the after they found Ricky's body. And they would hold him for a year and a half. What? That guy, I'm not going to give his name because he was found innocent. Yeah, totally. But he was held for a year and a half as a prime suspect. The police were not looking elsewhere. Jeez. So what does that give John? A chance to get away. And, like I said, he had already enrolled in the military. Mm. So this was kind of his last hurrah before he leaves. There is a period of time between August 1982 and December of 1982 that we don't know what happened. Hmm. I cannot find that timeline, and believe you me, I looked for it. Interesting. Okay. Because I have thoughts. I mean, he was, yeah, interesting. (laughs) Sometime before the end of 1982, John resettles in Omaha, Nebraska at Offutt Air Force Base. Okay. We know that he left shortly after he murdered Ricky Stetson. And we know that he was officially there by December. Okay. In the military, while he's at Offutt Air Force Base, he starts working as a radar technician and living on the base. So he lives on the dorms at the base. Okay. Now, whether or not he saw this as like, oh, like this is going to be a new start for me. This is going to be, I'm putting that behind me. I didn't get caught, so I'm never going to do any of this again. We don't really know. Mm. But similar to kind of when he tried to leave for college, he tried to kind of fit in yeah. at the Air Force Base. Again, he's with other young, like, late teens, early 20s guys. He managed to make one friend, like, quite literally his first friend in life. Wow. With his roommate. Well, okay, that's convenient. Yeah, that's convenient. Roommates make good friends, right? Yeah, it worked out okay for us. I mean, I like you. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, they hung out all the time. They got along really, really well. So much so that rumors would start. Mm. And teasing would start. And once again, the bullying about John being gay started. Uh. There were rumors. There was teasing that, oh, they're gay. They're dating. This, that, and the other. Both John and this other guy were really, really bothered by it. The other guy, to the point that he requested his room to be moved. Mm. And probably in large part because there's hella homophobia going around. Yeah. But also, at the time in the military, that was an actual threat that you could get kicked out for. Right. Yeah, for sure. So without talking to John, the roommate would make an official request and have his living quarters changed. Mm. And this seems to be yet another trigger for... John backsliding. Yeah, it's rejection. Yeah. Whether Mm -hmm. it's backsliding or what, but it's another trigger for another episode. Yeah. So John is now living alone. And I want to talk about his life living alone a little bit. 
Okay. As he's living alone, one of the things that he does do to kind of give himself a little bit of a social life is he starts to volunteer at the local Boy Scout troop. Mm. Remember, he's an Eagle Scout. Yeah, I don't like where this is going. He becomes an assistant scout leader where he is praised as a great leader and he is just loved by the other scout masters. He's seen as reliable, dependable. He gets along really well with the other kids. Mm. And in his downtime when he's not scouting or doing his job as a radar technician, like I mentioned, he's reading those true crime detective novels mm-hmm. and magazines. And I think that he kind of thinks that Oh, if I deep dive into these, maybe I can just sublimate it. I can just sublimate all of these urges. Yeah, that's interesting. But he's with these young children that we've seen are his primary target. Yeah. And you'll see it all the time. You think you're sublimating it, but really you're just feeding mm-hmm. a drive. Yeah, yeah. So that drive to kill really, really starts boiling up again. Yikes. Here is the daily routine that John would eventually admit to doing. Okay. He would go through each day with these urges to go out and to find a boy to kill. He would fight them and battle them all day long. And he would tell himself, not tonight, but I'll do it in the morning. Interesting. He'd set his alarm for 6 a.m. or 6.30 And he'd say, when my alarm goes off, that's when I'm allowed to go kill. Hmm. Most mornings, he would simply shut off the alarm and go back to sleep. And then go through that same mental routine the entire day. That is so interesting. It's interesting, but also it works a lot of times. I actually had a professor in college who was um, was a wonderful, wonderful professor. addiction medicine professor mm-hmm. who said he did this to himself which one was it dr samini oh i like dr samini i love dr samini yeah. oh. but yeah he did this to himself when he was in recovery hmm. he'd say i can do drugs at 4 a.m yeah and and that's the only time i can do it well you're not every gonna night wake up and actually do it yeah exactly exactly so it can work. It did not prove to be foolproof for Mr. Jubert. I wonder if he read about that somewhere because it's really clever. I mean, yeah, it's really clever. I don't know. I'm going back to those like childhood IQ tests and, mm-hmm. you know, I know that the impetus is to poke holes, but it is a really good problem solving technique. It, it's a really good like executive functioning thing. It yeah. really, really is. Like just impulse control and all of that. Mm-hmm. I know. It, it's just my impetus to poke holes in everybody's IQ scores. <laughs> I know. I am what I am. Yeah. Um, but no, I think he was smart in a lot of ways. I, I just don't think that that smart's always carried over. Mm-hmm. I think it's just my instinct to poke holes in like the myth that serial killers are geniuses. Yeah. I think that's like the real, my real drive. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think it is, perhaps. And I also, like, I just think, like, it's important and interesting to think about raw intelligence to some degree, but it's not as though intelligence, like, precludes impulses, right? No. Like, your intelligence does not prevent you from having impulses. It may help you to figure out ways to try to 
slow mm-hmm. those impulses down, which it sounds like is what he was doing. But yeah, yeah, it's not like being smart makes you a good person, I guess is what I'm getting at. And I think that's like... I think that's an important thing to kind of think about. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of like a little virtue stuff, like... I don't know, like, it's kind of this, like, gross meritocracy game that we play sometimes. Like, mm-hmm. if you're a smart person, you're a good person. And that's just not reality. <laughs> no, no. Although I will say, a lot of IQ testing, especially on, like, three- to five-year-old kids, is so dependent on their impulse control. Well, you have to be able to get through the test. Yeah. As somebody yeah. who does these on the daily, if mm-hmm. you have an impulsive kid, they're going to score lower. Yeah, yeah. But impulsiveness and executive functioning change drastically between the age of five and the age of 20. Mm-hmm. But no, that was his plan for squelching these instincts to kill. However, what would happen was there were some mornings where he did wake up and he did get in his car and start driving around in the wee hours of the morning hunting for victims. Mm-hmm. Oh. Sometimes he would wake up before that 6 a.m. alarm and sometimes he was ready to go as soon as it went off. Paper boys. Hold on to that thought. Really? Hold on to that thought. Oh, no. I'm, I'm not kidding. Like, I, I need you to just, like, clutch on to that thought. Okay, it's in my rage pocket. All right. So he would go at the wee hours of the morning, driving around these very family neighborhoods, he liked to go where he knew that he would see school buses or mm. paper routes. Mm. And on one of these mornings is where he found Danny Joe Eberly. Oh, no. September 18th, 1983. Danny Joe Eberly is a 13-year-old newspaper boy from Bellevue, Nebraska. He was out on his Sunday paper route delivering the Omaha World Herald. Mm. He had just completed his third house. So he had his bag of papers with him, and he was on his bike just going through the neighborhood. As he arrives at the fourth house on his paper route, he walks by John Jubert. He quickly says hello, and then he grabs his bike to continue his route. As soon as he grabs his bike, John drew a knife at him, grabbed him by the mouth with his hand in the same way that he grabbed Vicky Goff. Mm. He instructs the boy to be quiet, to walk to the car, and to get into the trunk. Ew. Nobody sees this. Danny Joe doesn't make a noise, gets into the trunk. His newspaper bag and his bicycle are left at the scene. Mm. John drives him to a remote area, not too far away. They get to a gravel road just outside of town, and he instructs Danny Joe to get out of the trunk, to strip down to his underwear, and forces him to the ground, where he binds his hands and his feet. Wow. He put a gag over Danny Joe's mouth, at which time Danny asks Jubert if he's going to die. Oh, Danny. Jubert says yes as he's struggling to get his hands and everything else bound. And Danny Joe does his damnedest to try to wiggle and to roll his body away. Mm-hmm. But Jubert grabbed him and would 
repeatedly tie and untie the bindings in almost a compulsive manner. Weird. And then place surgical tape over Danny's mouth. Mm. Danny was stabbed nine times and bitten several times. Wow. Okay. Once again, John Jubert tries to stab out and gouge out the bite marks with his knife. (laughs) Danny would eventually die from loss of blood. Mm. The only, I guess, like semblance of like a kindness is that Danny Joe was not sexually assaulted. Interesting. He was forced to strip down to his underwear, but he was not sexually assaulted. (laughs) And he was then abandoned by the side of the road. Wow. Again, with really little effort to conceal the body. Yeah, but otherwise, he's had a lot of time to think about how the next one would go down. Mm Mm-hmm. Because now he's got, like, he's got a methodology, like, the get-in-the-trunk thing, the... Mm -hmm. I wonder if he had a location, like, kind of predetermined. Like, he's had time to think about how he would actually do this. Mm Mm-hmm. He's been thinking about this. He's been stewing on this. He's been you know, reading magazines and Mm. learning as he's been doing this. Danny Joe's parents, his parents and his older brother, his older brother was also a paper boy. Um, They really quickly realized that he was missing. Mm -hmm. And the search got underway really, really quickly. The family knew that something had happened because, again, he was only three houses down on his paper route. And they found, like I said, his bike and the papers just abandoned yeah you're not just gonna leave your bike as the police began their investigation like i said really immediately on this case danny joe's brother would say i saw a guy in a tan car a few days ago he was asking for directions and he seemed really Mm -hmm. suspicious and creeped out and it was just really strange and i think i just wanted you guys to know that I do not like how similar this is to Johnny Gosh. You know who else did not like how similar this was to Johnny Gosh? Noreen. The FBI. Ah, yeah, them too. Yeah. Within just days of this, because of its similarity to the Johnny Gosh disappearance, the FBI would send people out immediately. Wow. It took about three days of searching to find Danny Joe's body. Eventually, only four miles from where his bike was abandoned. So mm-hmm. John did not take him far. No. One important piece of evidence that they were able to find on Danny was a really unique piece of rope. Hmm. So the rope was white on the outside, but on the inside was all these different colored fibers. Interesting. Yeah. So it looked like a plain normal white rope, but when you cut into mm-hmm. it, it was like a rainbow effect. Hmm. So police tried their hardest to, like, track down this rope, but they could not find it. But what they knew was that it was unique. Yeah, that's interesting. So that goes into the evidence bin. Yeah, for sure. But what is more helpful, even than, like, that physical evidence, is what the FBI is able to put together. Mm -hmm. So... One, I didn't get to kind of mention this at the beginning because, again, I was just, like, so excited to go into it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We've been doing that a lot lately. Um, 
So one of the books and the researchers that I used kind of in developing all of this was um, the book A Need to Kill by Mark Pettit. Or Pettit. Mm-hmm. Mark Pettit interviewed Jubert from his jail cell for years. Yeah. And that's how we know a lot of this detailed information, like what happened to Danny Joe and why wow. we know how Danny Joe reacted. Um, he was able to build a really close connection impressively not just with jubert but the families of his victims wow so he was really able to ride that line between how he interviewed and how he showed his empathy and how he got to understand this case Mm -hmm. good for him yeah so he was the only person that was really close to the case that i've heard mention the fbi's involvement and mm. the Johnny Gosh connection. And unfortunately, he doesn't go into too much detail about it. Yeah. But I'll mention it kind of at the end. Actually, you know what? I'll just mention it here. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're already here. So I'm already well. here. So I might as well mention it. And like, this was why I was so excited to like cover this case. Because mm. does that not mirror the Johnny Gosh disappearance? Oh, yeah. 100%. Freakishly so. Yeah, to the point where, like, I want to know how far away Omaha is from West Des Moines. Two hours. Okay. <laughs> two hours, and that's so. I looked into this. So it's a mm-hmm. two-hour drive from Omaha to West Des Moines. Johnny Gosh disappeared in that time period between the murder of Ricky Stetson and when John Jubert appears in Nebraska. Oh, interesting. Johnny Gosh's disappearance. I forget the exact date, but it's early September. Mm-hmm. And and again, somebody might have more detailed information, but I looked my ass off and I couldn't find it officially. Mm-hmm. We only know that he was last in Maine at the end of August, and we don't know where he was until he hit off at Air Force Base. Interesting. We know that he did travel a lot. Mm-hmm. He would visit people in Virginia or in Texas and... Mm. And the drive from Portland, Maine to Omaha, you have to go through Des Moines. Mm, That was my next question. That's interesting. So if we're thinking about like there's this like stress buildup and stress buildup and stress buildup and then a release, Mm -hmm. what's more stressful than running away from a murder investigation? Yeah, yeah. Is that what you think? That's what I think. Do you think think that it's it's possible that Johnny Gosh was a victim of Jubert? I really? really, really do. My only question is, like, the I'm not big sa- difference. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously you're not saying, like, yes, I, this is it. <laughs> yes, but, this is what happened. Like, I solved the case. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, Juber didn't suddenly go from not concealing bodies to concealing a body so well we've never found it. Yeah. To then not concealing bodies, right? Like, that's very inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, it's... It's very compelling. And if nothing else, even if he didn't involve himself with Johnny Gosh, I wonder if he read the paper, thought, oh, that's smart. Newspaper routes. It'll Mm -hmm. be dark. It'll be easy to find somebody. How else would you think about that? Yeah. Like, that's a weird thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a convincing connection that he was aware of that case Mm -hmm. given his interest in true crime yeah and that that maybe gave him the idea that that's a good that that would be like relatively easy to do yeah Mm -hmm. 
It's not a school bus stop at 315. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. It's it's so compelling. And I'm obviously not the first person to think about this. If you want like a, mm-hmm. a better breakdown of it, there is a, a good blog post called Suzuki's Thoughts. Just a mm. guy with his blog. Um, and mm-hmm. if you just Google like John Jubert, Johnny Gosh, it will. This is like the first thing that will come up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I will say trigger warning because it, it includes the crime scene photos of these boys' murders, which yeah. I regret seeing. It was not pleasant. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that's the fact that even the FBI. So I want to get back to the FBI connection here. Mm-hmm. So. Almost immediately after Danny Joe's disappearance, before they even find his body, the FBI sends out, like, legit top-ass dog profiler Robert K. Ressler. Mm. Are you familiar with my friend Robert Ressler? No, but I can tell you are. You just got all pink. Oh, I'm always pink. But <laughs> <laughs> <That's true. laughs> Let me tell you about how great this man is. Mm-hmm. He is the man who inspired the character Bill Tench on Mindhunter. Oh, that's cool. So I know everybody loves, like, John Douglas and all of that. Great. Mm-hmm. Robert Ressler is where it's at. <laughs> um, he is the man behind the books, the Crime Classification Manual, Whoever Fights Monsters, and I Have Lived With Monsters. He was one of the, like, main men that helped just create the idea of criminal profiling. Hmm. Like, from nothing to what it is today. That's cool. So the fact that the police see the similarity, they contact the FBI and the FBI sends out like one of their top dogs. Yeah. To me, that's they were watching the Johnny Gosh case. They were investigating it. They Mm -hmm. did want to solve this. Yeah, 100%. And Ressler is, again, fucking kick ass. His profile was so goddamn on point. Really? Let me tell you. Okay, what did he say? What did he say? What did he say? All right. So, Wrestler, just by looking at the crime scene and just by looking at what had happened, he says, the killer is a slight man with limited strength because he wasn't far from the road. And that means that it wasn't that he didn't want to hide the bodies, but that he was too weak to move them. Mm. He said that the killer would likely find his way into a place of trust in the community. Mm Mm-hmm. Boy Scouts. A place where he would have access to preteen boys, like Mm -hmm. a coach or a scout leader. That he was inexperienced, but he knew a lot about criminals. Holy shit. He knew that by the fact that he tried to obscure the bite marks. And Mm -hmm. wrestlers like, this guy reads detective magazines. This guy follows us. He said, this guy, he seeks domination. The murders are an attempt to dominate. They're an attempt to instill fear and feel powerful. Mm. He wants to humiliate these boys. He doesn't want to have sex with them. He wants to humiliate them. Mm. But he still finds sexual release in the humiliation. He doesn't even have to touch them in order to get that release. The excitement Mm -hmm. comes from the power and the domination. Right. The boys he targeted likely reflect a period that he is trying to remaster. A period of trauma and rejection. Oh my gosh. This guy is so good. Wrestler says, our killer is trying to perfect murder. Mm. 
He has a fantasy that he has built in his mind, and he will not stop until he has acted out that perfect murder. He is going to keep chasing the perfect kill. Mm. Oh, wrestler. That's interesting. I like that that, I mean, I don't like it, but I, I think it's interesting that it also implies that this was not perfect for him. Mm-hmm. Like there was still something missing. And I mm-hmm. wonder what that was. What that was. And what mm-hmm. what he has in his mind that is the perfect murder. Yeah. They took this profile and ran with it. They started... As they should, because it's literally perfect. Because it's literally perfect. Like, this... I think that it's interesting that, like, this doesn't get a lot of kind of, like, media play. Mm -hmm. But it gets a lot of play, apparently, in FBI courses. Mm. Like, they teach this case. Yeah. Like, this is how to profile you guys. (laughs) And wrestlers up there like, I did that. Yeah. I did that. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, that's really incredible. Yeah. So they would kind of gather up any local pedophile child molester that they could. They would start interviewing like local kind of youth agencies of like, do you know of anything? Is there anything throwing Mm -hmm. you off about somebody? They would identify one primary suspect, a man who was arrested for molesting two other young boys just a week after Danny Joe's disappearance. Mm Mm-hmm. But that man passed a polygraph, and they didn't have any evidence to connect him to the crime. Mm. So that's going to bring us to December 2nd, 1983. Okay. Jubert, once again, wakes up in those pre-dawn hours, and he's ready to go. He drives over to nearby Papillon, Nebraska, which is about 10 miles away. Mm. While he's driving around, he sees 12-year-old Christopher Walden walking to school. John Jubert drives up by Christopher, gets out of his car, displays his knife, and tells Christopher to quietly get in the car. Now, here's one thing that he did wrong. There's Mm. witnesses. He was too quick and he was too public. Uh. Two older women would see this happen, but they both said that it happened so quickly they couldn't get a look at the person or the car. They just knew that it was a tan car. Okay. So Jubert gets the boy into the car, apparently, again, super quickly and completely silently. Mm-hmm. Christopher complies, and Jubert forces him down to get onto the floorboard so that nobody could see him. Not the trunk this time. That's Not the trunk this time. Mm-hmm. Mm. And along with that, apparently, like, as Christopher was, like, curled up on the floor of the car, obviously, like, crying and terrified jubert starts to consider letting him go Hmm. but then is like well if i let him go he's going to tell somebody and then i'm going to get caught so he decides against it jubert takes christopher to a secluded spot where he drags the boy out of the car near the spot where he's selected so this is a more secluded spot near some railroad tracks Mm. he actually makes the boy walk along the railroad tracks for quite a while Jubert tells him, if you just do what I say, you're going to live. You're going to be fine. Hmm. He once again forces Christopher to strip down to his underwear and lay on the snowy ground. Mm. The boy initially resists, 
so Jubert grabs his neck and forces him to the ground. He begins to strangle the boy as long as he can until Jubert's hands freeze up. Mm. Jubert then grabs his knife and starts stabbing and cutting at him. Jubert finally kills him by cutting his throat, and Christopher dies from loss of blood. Mm. But once again, we see this like savage level of attack with stab marks and cut marks and bite marks and all of these unnecessarily just unnecessary damage to this child yeah Yeah. at one point jubert carves a crude star or kind of like a plant-like shape into his chest weird really kind of perfecting that i'm gonna have my signature Mm -hmm. kind of thing and again it seems like more experimentation than anything else it doesn't seem to have a precise meaning even to jubert yeah and once again, he tries to gouge out the bite marks. Mm-hmm. He made a little bit more of an effort to hide this body. So again, he's like further out on the tracks. He's kind of in the middle of nowhere. He tries to cover it up. Also, there's snow falling. So the snow covers his body a bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But after that, he leaves the scene and goes right back to the Air Force Base. He throws the knife that he used on both boys into a dumpster. Mm, same knife interesting same knife he goes to take a nap and then he goes to run a boy scout meeting wow Mm -hmm. now once again when walden disappeared he was on his way to school so his teachers when he doesn't get there pretty quickly call home and say hey where's chris yeah the parents freak out. They call the police. And again, the the search starts immediately. Mm. It takes another about three days for the police to find his body. Um, by the time that they had found it, it had been frozen over, covered in ice and snow. And Wow. Gosh, that poor child. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like, at this point, these two disappearances, these two murders had happened so close in time. Like, the whole Mm -hmm. Omaha area was, like, in an uproar. Yeah, totally. The families were in fear for their kids. This was 1983 again. So this is two years after Johnny Gosh's disappearance. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. It was just one year after Johnny Gosh's disappearance and only two hours away. Right. Apparently, like, other community members, like, they stopped letting their kids walk to school. Like, they stopped all of this. Mm-hmm. They're not playing in the I'm streets sure anymore. their kids from paper routes. Yeah. Hell yes. Again, mm-hmm. after this many paper boys go missing, like, you can't not be freaked out. Yeah, for sure. John Juber is, he's asked to speak to this, to his scouts. <gasps> oh, wow. Yeah. Like, here's how to be safe, you guys. That's wow. literally, he would lead scout meetings on like here's how to be safe make sure you're with somebody don't go out alone he was teaching kids how to avoid him wow that's really chilling it feels so sick it's interesting also though that he like he has access to his demographic that he likes to -hmm. kill but he doesn't go after boys he actually knows so one thing that was suspected and this was never completely proven was whether or not any of these boys like casually knew jubert yeah like they had seen him in the community or like oh that's Mm. like my friend scout leader because we know that at least danny joe like stopped to say hi to him yeah that's interesting 
And again, he looks very unassuming. He does. Yeah, he does. He also, like, like the two boys, Danny, Joe, and Christopher, they look pretty similar to each other. Yes, they do. From what I can see in the pictures. Yes, they do. So, like, certainly, Jubert has, like, a set of tastes mm-hmm. that seem pretty specific. I mean, Ricky, back in Maine... I think he seems like a little bit of the outlier, but that was still kind of his, like, experiment phase in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think by the time he got to Nebraska, he had really honed in on a profile that he wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really do think that he would have just kept killing. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Because I don't think that that was probably his perfect kill yet, like, if we're going by that profile, mm-hmm. which is apparently perfection. Like messing with a carving a symbol like Mm -hmm. that feels like oh I'm gonna try this you know maybe this will be like my new thing you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's not quite like it's not done perfectly it's not like perfectly thought out yeah and we know that there never actually is a perfect for any of these people it's like if you Mm -hmm. speak to somebody with OCD and they want to do something perfectly there never is a perfect right there's just a compulsion to redo it and redo it. Mm-hmm. Um, but during all of this, obviously, the FBI is adding everything to their profile that they learned from Christopher's case. Yeah. They talk to those two women and are able to get a composite drawing. Um, which, it, it's a composite drawing. It, I think it looks generic enough, but also fitting enough mm-hmm. um, of the man that they saw word went around that he has a profile of a victim he is probably going to start hanging around around schoolyards and bus stop and things like that mm-hmm. one thing that's really interesting that the police tried to do is you know how when the police made the first statement in the delphi killer case where they kind of taunted the killer yeah 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 where they kind of said like we're gonna find you we know you're yeah mm-hmm. these guys did the same thing the local sheriff, his name was Patrick Thomas, said in an announcement, I think the individual who's responsible for these acts is sick and spineless, a coward. I urge him to call a minister, a priest, or me. Hmm. He speaks directly to Jubert. Just like in the Delphi case, he said, if you're really a man, come mess with somebody your own size. Hmm. And apparently Jubert was watching this. I'm sure he was. Oh, Just like I'm certain the Delphi guy was, too. Yep. He was watching this. And obviously, like, the, the attempt, the goal of doing stuff like that is to get them to make a mistake, right? Mm-hmm. And he did. Mm. Jubert did. Good. So just a couple weeks later, so now we're in January 1984, preschool teacher, devout Christian, and true crime enthusiast, Barbara Weaver, we love her. Familiar yes, name. kind of right? Lady. Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> sad. I know, but we love her. She's wonderful. Mm-hmm. She had been following the case and keeping a close eye out. It scared her because she lived in the area. She had kids around this age that went to school mm-hmm. in the area. And as a teacher, she was close with a lot of the families. Yeah. So the morning of january 11th she gets her kids ready for school they all say a prayer together and it kind of in her own personal prayer to herself she kind of prays that the case is solved and asks god if there's anything i can do to help these 
this case get solved and to help get these families justice, send me the ability to help. I love her. Oh, she's fucking rad. (laughs) I love her. I love her so much. And then she goes off to work. She works at a parochial preschool. So she starts setting up the classroom. She's obviously an early riser. Mm -hmm. She glances out the classroom window where she sees a suspicious car that she'd never seen before. Wow. Something about it, just gut check, made her uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. She tried to move around to get a good look at like the license plate, the guy inside. And she kind of is like looking around through the different windows. And she's like, oof. Ooh, he looks like that composite sketch. Wow. But then the two kind of flash made eye contact. Ooh, oh, chilling. Oh. I just got I just got goosebumps down my little spine. Ooh. Oh, and she did too, and she starts to freak out. Mm-hmm. She breaks eye contact, flashes to the license plate, repeats it in her head, repeats it in her head, repeats it in her head as she's like shuffling to try to find a, something to write it on. Mm-hmm. She glances away and then back while she's looking for something to write this on. And suddenly she turns around and the man is no longer in the car. Oh. He flings open the door of the classroom and threatens <gasps> her with a knife. Oh my gosh. Oh, oh, I'm going to need a second. <laughs> I love it when I get to do this to you. Yeah, that is... Um absolutely terrifying and as a teacher absolutely like seriously bone chilling uh-huh as a human woman uh-huh. but also how stupid are you gonna get homie you're gonna walk into a school and threaten somebody like you think you're not gonna get seen yeah yeah and like you know how like a lot of like churches they just have the preschool like off to the side Mm-hmm. And it's just like there's an outdoor entrance, and then there's an entrance like into the church area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can picture that exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oof. Wow. So she somehow. I still have like my thighs are tingling. <laughs> like this is not okay. <laughs> oh my god! Let me like massage my legs. <laughs> I didn't mean for this to be like that chilling. Oh. No, that really got to me. I mean, I just been thinking about like, you know, when you're, it's one of the, like teaching is one of those occupations that like, it puts you so in touch with like the human condition in so many ways. So like, I understand her so well, like in large part, that's why Delphi got to me so much. Mm-hmm. Like Libby and Abby were the same, in the same grade as I was teaching the year that they were killed so they like were my babies you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a way and and that just like when you're a teacher I mean everybody you know has the impulse to protect children but Mm -hmm. it just feels different when you aren't constantly in contact with them and like your relationship with them is it's different than like the average you know Mm -hmm. so wow okay anyway that was not very articulate because I'm like (laughs) flipping my entire fritter right now so okay it's okay yeah you go ahead and continue i'm just gonna sip some tea and try to calm down okay okay well she she gets out she somehow manages to like run past him and shove him over Mm. and she runs across the street just starts banging on a random house wow the owner lets her in 
Well, Jubert is running out of the preschool, runs into his car, and flees the scene. Wow. She calls the police immediately, reports everything that just happened. She gives him the license plate number. She was like, he looked like this, and he met the description. Go get Mm. him. Yeah. Police are on that shit. Police are able to track the license plate down to a rental car. That's interesting. He rented a car this time. And apparently that was just a coincidence, just like his car needed repairs. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But they track it to a rental car, and then they track the rental car to obviously his address mm-hmm. at Offutt Air Force Base in Bellevue. They knock on the door, and they find a young, slight, weak little man, not even 21 years old yet. Wow. A search of his home reveals his Eagle Scout uniform, some softcore detective porn, a bunch of true crime, true detective magazines, and then they look into his actual car, mm. and they find a collection of hairs that match Danny Joe's. Oh, wow. They also find duct tape, a knife, and a very unique piece of rope. Oh, good. White on the outside. Rainbows on the inside. Mm. This is very satisfying. Ah, so satisfying, right? We love you, Barbara. Mm -hmm. Upon further investigation, because they were like, where the hell did you get this rope? Just, just, and I think just out of curiosity. Yeah, because I'm sure he didn't know that it was unique. No, or else why would he use it? Because why would you buy it? Yeah. He didn't buy it. Apparently a scout leader gave it to him. Hmm. to practice knots on okay that's interesting yeah and again i'm sure the scout leader was like here's a random piece of rope yeah practice and have a good time weirdly enough they tracked the rope down to a specific type of rope used during the korean war by a specific branch of the military Hmm. just an odd fact i just that's interesting that's such like an accidental highly (laughs) unique signature that he didn't even know he had yeah his signatures are what got him in trouble. Yeah. After being taken into police custody, John would quickly admit to the murders of Danny, Joe, and Christopher. Mm. So he had gotten the rental car and then put all of his shit in there. That's dumb. Because he was like, yeah, I wanted to go out and kill again. That's really dumb. Again, he's... I, I'm sure there are parts of him that are smart, but there are parts of him that are just dumb. Like, once yeah. these compulsions hit... I mean, and, and who of us isn't kind of dumb when we're when in we the have face of whatever? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, I really want to be careful with my money, and I am most of the time, but take me to Target, and it's going to be a problem. Like... <laughs> me at the garden center this weekend, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. I need another Dahlia. Exactly. Uh, where was I? <laughs> the police find all of this stuff in a car, and and he admits he's like yeah i was gonna go out and find somebody to kill again wow eventually he would say like the police would ask him if we let you go do you think you've learned your lesson and he's like no i would probably keep killing yeah what i mean nothing has been happening to him other than being questioned so far mm-hmm. that's a dumb question i think they just wanted to know again i mm-hmm. which of us doesn't even get a little off topic and just need to ask questions out of curiosity 
<laughs> hashtag Mac. Hashtag Mac. Hashtag, yeah. hashtag tangential thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, hashtag Aquarius. So John would plead guilty to both murders and give a graphically detailed account of each one. Mm. Everything that he did to the boys. So that would not only lead to charges of murder, but charges of depravity. Wow. And if you guys want to get more details about the depravity charges, go for it. Yeah. They are really interesting. Yeah. To look into in general. They're interesting to look into. I just did not need to know more depravity on this case. Yeah. So uh, did he at this time admit to Ricky? No. In Maine? No. Okay. He had not admitted to Ricky. John would undergo extensive psychiatric evaluation while in custody. Mm-hmm. Reports were mixed um, by different evaluators. And obviously they've gotten kind of written and rewritten over the years. Mm-hmm. But generally what I've kind of garnered from various sources is that he was diagnosed with a mixed personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Meaning that he shows enough traits of multiple ones and you can only diagnose one personality disorder at a time. Mm. So our workaround with that is they diagnosed him with mixed personality disorder, saying that he has traits of both schizoid and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Interesting. So schizoid personality disorder is essentially a kind of severe, isolative, anxious state. Mm -hmm. When I take clinical personality tests... This is what I score high on. Yeah, I was just thinking that from our experiments <laughs> last summer with all, <laughs> giving ourselves personality tests. <laughs> there is an updated version of one that I use, and I needed to check it out. Totally ethical. I was within my guidelines. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, <laughs> anyway, but that's schizoid. It's like this isolative state mm-hmm. um, yeah. with kind of like a lack of social drive. Mm-hmm. And obsessive-compulsive traits. So obsessive-compulsive personality disorder is a little different than obsessive-compulsive disorder. Mm. It's essentially as if those OCD traits are less severe, but in everything. Mm. So people that are kind of always needing things to be just so, and there's always like an anxiety behind having them just so. Mm -hmm. That speaks to that. That's interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. As well as, and this is not necessarily a clinical disorder, but sadistic traits, which I think is Mm. pretty clear with those signs of depravity. Yeah. Again, like everything was dominant seeking. Everything was Mm -hmm. humiliation. Everything was, I want to control you. Yeah. Sadistic personality disorder might have been in the DSM-3, which would have been the dominant one at this time, but Mm -hmm. I have one on my shelf, but haven't pulled it Mm -hmm. out in a while. Gotcha. So he would be found guilty in 1986, and he was sentenced to death by the state of Nebraska for the deaths of Danny, Joe, and Christopher. Mm. Now, your question was, what about Ricky? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So apparently he admitted this to Michael Pettit, his author, Mm. but Pettit did not tell that to police. Interesting. There was a lot of back and forth, and you would you would actually, in order to get this truly, you would have to track down the first edition of the book. Mm. I have not done that, um, but when that book was published, there was a lot of anger and a lot of obviously like frustration with mm-hmm. that. Yeah, but 
Pettit's response was, I had to keep the integrity of my source. Because mm-hmm. eventually, what would they do? They would make Pettit testify against Jubert. Right, right. And then Jubert stopped giving Pettit any information. Right. But that's not how we found out about Ricky Stetson. Really? No. Okay. So how do we find out? Remember my boyfriend, wrestler? I do. So my boyfriend was giving lectures at Quantico on profiling. Mm. And he, like I said, would often use Jubert as an example. Mm-hmm. A lot of police agencies would p- send people to these lectures and whatnot for training. A detective from Maine happened to be in the audience. Oh, wow. And after the lecture, he goes up to wrestler and he's like, hey, we got this case. Oh, my goodness. And he's like, you know, the bite marks that really stood out to me. Mm-hmm. I would really, really like your help on this. Because at the time, Ricky Stetson's case was still unsolved. Yeah. So wrestler and this other detective, whose name I don't have, unfortunately. I wish I did. Mm, that's um, good. Yeah. They drag out the evidence and they start to look at everything. Mm. They petition to get the bite marks checked again and to get mm-hmm. the bite marks checked against Jubert. And in 1990, the state of Maine sentences Jubert once again to life in prison for murder. Wow. Good for job, Ricky Maine. Stetson. Good job, Maine. They also allow them to close the pencil stabbing case and several of the other cases from when he was a teenager. Wow. Most of those would have been passed. Well, actually, no, they wouldn't have been passed, like the statute of limitations, because it was only like a handful of years. Yeah, it would just depend on the state and the statute. But, yeah. yeah. But they were able to close all of those cases. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. But we're going to hold up because we're still not done. We're almost okay. done. <laughs> but Jubert was a talker. So mm-hmm. once he got in prison, he was a talker. Um, he worked with various psychologists, various psychiatrists during his time in prison. He, like I said, did all of this work with Mark Pettit. The two became really, really close. And Jubert starts to build some insights into why he killed. Hmm. And he starts to work up his own little profile. Oh, boy. He describes his childhood. His focus was really on the bullying. That was his mm-hmm. biggest thing, was that it was the bullying that made me do this. That is what in interviews he will talk about the most. But what's even interesting is that I, I love this because we talk about like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you all the mm-hmm. time? But then we're also like, I don't care. That's still not enough. You know, we talk about like, oh, your parents got divorced. I don't care. That's not enough to kill somebody. Oh, I was bullied. I don't care. That's not enough to make you kill somebody. Jubert described his reasons for killing people. He has this light bulb moment and he says, I guess that was really trivial. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, it was. That's so interesting. So... And Jubert was eventually executed um, by mm-hmm. the state of Nebraska. So he was found guilty in Maine, and Maine agreed to basically say, we don't have the death penalty, you can have him back. Mm-hmm. But Jubert would give a series of interviews and talks before he was executed in 1996. And he says, yeah, you know, I had a lot of rejection and resentment toward my family. I was really rejected by my peers. And that's probably why I targeted that age group. 
He says, in a way, I was trying to kill myself. Mm. He says, and this is, this is where he shares. He basically says, you know, I talked to my mom the other day. Again, this is days before he was executed. I talked mm. to my mom the other day, and she told me that I apparently watched my father choke her until she passed out. And I don't mm. remember that. Well, the body remembers, Mr. Jubert. Oof. You know that's one of my favorite books. Mm. Or no, I'm sorry. It's The Body Keeps Score. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, yeah, Vanderpolt. It's Polk. so true, though. It's so true, though. But yeah, it's it was it's interesting to hear kind of some of his revelations mm-hmm. about like, oh, yeah, I don't remember all of these traumas. My reasons were kind of petty. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> and I think like when, you know, again, I always ask, why are you like this? All mm-hmm. of these profiles that I love to do and I'm obsessed with. Yeah. At the end of the day, all the reasons are trivial. That's what I was just going to say is like, there's, there's literally nothing that is ever going to make us say like, oh, yep, that's enough. Okay. That's I mean, a other good than reason. like extreme self-defense, right? Yeah. Like in those situations, you're like, oh yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just like, there's, it's always going to feel trivial unless it's a situation like that. It's always mm-hmm. going to feel like, come on, that's not enough. Or like, yeah, I have trauma too. So why are you like this? And I'm not, you know? Mm-hmm. Even down to, like, you know, there's nothing pathological about enjoying true crime. Like, obviously we do. Yeah. It's, like, literally all I do. Um, <laughs> many of our listeners, I'm sure, are in the same boat. Same boat. And we're not all here, like, using it to learn how to kill people. Exactly. You know? I was like, I just feel like it's never, it's never going to be enough, and it's always going to be something that's way more mundane than we want it to be. Mm-hmm. Like bullying. You know. You, you want to know how much I was bullied in middle school? Yeah, And I haven't killed anybody. And I'm not, you know, trying to poetically say, oh, I'm trying to kill myself. Mm-hmm. Again, it's... Yeah. Go to therapy then. Right. Yeah, but it's just that's not... That's not reality for mm-hmm. these people. Like, it's just not, you know? I know. And we want... I feel like, I just feel like we want there to be this, like, X factor, and it just never shows up. I think that the X factors are so minute and so stackable... Mm-hmm. that it takes a very special set of situations of lifetime events and genetics and mm-hmm. epigenetics. And it's not like you can ever predict it. And again, even when you have all those factors, it's not like I'm going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, you can be a killer now. Yeah, yeah. I think you could look at childhood trauma, genetics, epigenetics, all that stuff for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And with the wrong set of other circumstances, a profile against me would make sense. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. And that's just like, it's kind of chilling and like kind of, it's a real brain scratcher <laughs> to think that way. Like, what is the difference between somebody with like trauma that has a normal life and somebody with trauma that does that, you know? And at the end of the day, maybe there isn't really any difference. So like, I read neuroimaging and Mm -hmm. all of that stuff. Like, we can find brain differences in people Mm -hmm. that are antisocial and people that are killers. But those exact same brain structure differences are in people that aren't killers. Right. So I I love searching for answers, and it's not like I'm ever going to stop. But hearing 
a depraved serial killer be like yeah it was pretty trivial wasn't it yeah it, it does make me stop and be like why do i look for answers <laughs> <laughs> my god why bother <laughs> why bother right yeah. big? Um, that's really interesting but yeah i'm again i'm ugh. but it, it was interesting to me but do you want to hear kind of there's two more little points to john jubert's story okay so john jubert was electrocuted by the state of nebraska in 1996 mm-hmm. that was fast yeah it was he was actually one of the last people executed by the electric chair Mm. And partially the reason why they stopped doing the electric chair was uh, because of him. Oh, really? So, do you know how they would do this? Uh, I mean, I feel like I know, like, what you hear in movies, you know? Like, I can describe what they did in the Green Mile, Everybody right? I can describe the Green Mile, because it's the best. Yeah, it is. So, it's apparently a four-step process mm-hmm. of just, like, increasingly severe shocks. Mm-hmm. Where, like, shock, off shock off yeah obviously many people describe it as cruel and unusual mm-hmm. and why it's no longer which used. it is it is yeah. it is mm-hmm. um so it feels weird to talk about this because obviously he was such a depraved killer but like mm-hmm. they released like his autopsy after he was killed he was mm-hmm. alive the entire time oh my god and had like you know when you get a blister like on your foot mm-hmm. from like rubbing? He had mm-hmm. four inch blisters on his brain. Whoa. That's unbelievable. Ooh. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. So a lot of people kind of were just like, yeah, let's not do this anymore. Yeah. Because of his execution, they stopped doing executions in this, st- or they stopped using the electric chair. In the state of Nebraska. The last bit, I feel like I'm rushing through this last bit, but I also know this episode is getting kind of long. Yeah. Um, So, Jubert was a bit of an artist in prison. Hmm. The police and the wardens did not allow any of his drawings released while he was alive. Mark Mm. Pettit attempted to get these, like, petitioned to try to get them out, and he never could. But somebody after he died anonymously sent them to Pettit interesting to publish them we got three of them mm. i have two of them do you want to see them i do okay i i have seen the third one but i couldn't find a pdf of it or like a picture mm. of it i only saw it in like a video and i tried to get a screen grab of it and i couldn't <laughs> it just didn't work it did not so here is the first one what the hell yep Ew. That's drawing. Is a that boy. a monkey? That's a boy with his. Oh, with his mouth slashed. Mouth. Either slashed or bound. I think this looks like bindings. Wow. Um, and then. That's really chilling. That's chilling. And then let me bring up number two. I always have visual aids with these. So I'm sorry if you guys don't visit the socials. And this is number two. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's a naked boy bound. Yeah. Wow. With that same, like, lack of a mm-hmm. face. Yeah, that's why the in the first one, like, at, from far away until you zoomed it, I thought it looked like a monkey. And then from close up, it looked 
a little bit like decomposed. I mean, obviously these are like sketches, you know, and somebody without any like artistic training or anything like that, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's still, it was not made to look like good. You know what I mean? Look at the detail on the knot. I find this really interesting. Extremely detailed. Yeah, extremely detailed. You will find, um, compares like side-by-side shots of this Mm -hmm. and how Danny Joe Eberly's hands were bound. Yeah. Are they the same? Exactly the same. Wow. Is the third one that you couldn't get a screen grab of pretty much the same type of stuff? It's a little bit more detailed. Mm. Yeah. I mean, to that officer's question, like, are you, have you learned your lesson? No. And the pictures that he was drawing show us that he was still actively fantasizing about what he was doing all the way to the end. I think up until the day he died, he was fantasizing about it. Mm -hmm. There's a really good article. The one that um, released the interview just a few days before he was executed, where he says, I think I finally learned. I think I'm safe now. Mm. I don't think he did. I really don't. I don't think so either. I don't think so either. I think he tried to tell Mark Pettit, like, yeah, I think I've, I've learned I wouldn't I wouldn't do this again. And I just, I don't believe it. I don't believe yeah, it. No, none, of, none of the investigators believed it. Yeah. Lies. Lies, lies, lies. Yeah, he was fantasizing about this his entire life. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's the story of John Jubert. Good gracious. I feel so drained <laughs> right now. <laughs> Oh my gosh that is it's unbelievable it's really unbelievable I mean I'm at this weird place where I feel like I want to learn more but I also don't mm-hmm. I can't believe that I didn't really know anything about him I can't believe that more people don't know about him he's so the profiling piece is really interesting to me mm-hmm. yeah it is Dang, you did a good job. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. I feel like these ones that like I get really like antsy to like tell. Mm-hmm. I always get yeah. really nervous and disorganized in the beginning. Oh, because <laughs> you're like, am I gonna die? Ah. Yeah. And I'm like, let me info dump. Let me info dump. Let me info dump. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I'm here for it. Ah. But yeah, if you guys want to learn more, that book by Mark Pettit is good. I did not get a chance to read the entire thing. Mm. Just some like snippets and uh, listen to a couple interviews with Pettit. Mm-hmm. Really, really interesting. He has so much detail just about the things that the families went through. So really, I know that this was really about kind of profiling Jubert. But like we always say, like take really a minute to think about Danny yeah. Joe and Ricky and Christopher's families. And yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> Dang. And maybe Johnny Gosh's. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? That's something to spend more time noodling on for sure. Mm-hmm. Dang. Okay. Yeah, exhale. Let out that exhale you've been holding for this entire time. <laughs> well, I breathe and catch my breath. Why don't you tell us about next week? Yeah, so um, this one, kind of similarly, it really got into my heart to be honest. So we will be exploring a Jane Doe case. All right. We'll be going back to Wisconsin in 1999 when the discovery of a Jane Doe in a cornfield would begin a 20-year investigation. Oh, damn. Into what happened to her. Yeah. All right. 
I'm excited to hear a Jane Doe case. Yeah. Yeah, I've just been thinking about it, like, constantly. Like, I can't stop talking about it. I can't stop thinking about it. So, um, yeah, it's it, – it really – this one really got under my skin. So, yeah. I'm excited to hear about it and for you to dump on me. Yes, I can't wait to dump on you. And dump on our level, lovely listeners. Absolutely. Dumps all around. <laughs> yes let us just dump all around so um again thank you for being here people we are so glad um be sure as always to follow us on the socials we're admin wretched everywhere as always we're just like loving talking to you so yeah heck yeah you guys have been amazing on the socials thank you guys so much yeah we really appreciate it makes my day me too yeah so yeah please come back and um we look forward to having you back next week and hopefully for many more weeks of mid-wretched to come as we approach our anniversary also this is like a slightly like just off topic i have been editing with a different software so if things Mm. sound different if they sound worse tell me and i'll go back to the previous one but hopefully they sound better hopefully (laughs) hopefully they sound better but it was wonky for a few weeks while i was getting my uh my bearings on this one so but but feedback is welcome so yeah we do like that we like that a lot Mm mm-hmm all right, people, should we should we say goodbye? Let's say goodbye. You need to go to bed. I really need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Same. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> so uh, be nice. Eat cheese. And we, we love you. rosé cider no you don't have to apologize for having a body it's a beautiful thing yeah it does beautiful things like that